0: It's Friday 30th of June, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be hearing about the debate around greedflation. But first, I'm joined again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. This is apparently the nicest time of year for a holiday in Sintra in Portugal. But that's not what central bankers were doing there last week, was it?
1: Tell us what was going on. Yes, this is the ECB's annual conference in Sintra. Think of it like the ECB's equivalent of the Fed's meeting at Jackson Hole. It's become a forum where policymakers get together. There's lots of speeches. So, Jay Powell was there. Christine Lagarde, of course, was there. Andrew Bailey was there. Ueda was there. So, all the big central bankers were there. We got to hear from them about the outlook for inflation and what they think that means for monetary policy. And really, the message that came through was. I mean, on the one hand, extremely hawkish, as you might imagine, but perhaps a bit more nuanced. So extremely hawkish from Christine Lagarde, and in particular, Andrew Bailey, but a bit more of a nuanced message coming from Jay Powell. Yes, certainly still very much in hawkish mode, but it also acknowledging that US rates are in restrictive territory. And that perhaps marked him out a little bit from his counterparts in, in Europe.
0: I wanted to pick up on, on Christine Lagarde's comments, talking about the idea that inflation could be persistent. This word persistent seems to be flying around a lot at the moment. Talking about inflation in terms of years and not months, is this all just central banks trying to manage the message in terms of market expectations that rate cuts coming soon? Or or is there a sense here that we're
1: in for the long haul? Well, it's certainly the case that central banks are trying to manage the message. The last thing they want to do at the moment is send even a semblance of a dovish signal that means that markets start to Anticipate rate cuts, price those in, and the financial conditions start to loosen. That's the last thing they want to do. They when they think they've still got more work to, to do in order to, to to squeeze inflation out of the system. So there's certainly a part of this which is about managing the message. I think there's also a sense in which that, as we've talked about before, they simply don't know the extent to which they need to push back against demand in order to squeeze inflation out of the system. We've had a lot of discussion internally this week about the different messages that are being sent by what's happened to real GDP, which has been pretty weak in, in the US and stagnated in, in Europe and the UK, as opposed to nominal GDP, which has been pretty strong and you know, well above its pre-pandemic trend across Europe and the US. You know, what is that telling us? I think one thing it's telling us is that demand is pretty overheated despite the fact that real GDP is not really growing. Why is that? It's because economies have hit the buffers and the extent to which central banks need to push back in order to kind of cool demand, that, you know, that demand has been reflected in higher prices, not higher output. The extent to which they then need to push back against that, I think still unclear. They don't know. So part of this is about managing the message, but I think part of this is also about genuine uncertainty. Now, my sense is that you know 5% interest rates in the UK, that's not going to be the kind of long-term new rate for, for the UK. Likewise, you know we're over 5% now in the US. We now think Eurozone rates are going to peak at 4%. I think they're the peaks rather than the long-term norms. Yeah. You know, and, and there will be some space for rate cuts probably in, in 2024. But certainly central banks, you know, it's unclear how much room there is at this stage. And they're trying to push back against, against markets pricing that in overly aggressively at the moment because it's the last thing that they, that they want to need.
0: We've just had some new Eurozone inflation data out. What are the key messages there in terms of, of prices and,
1: and policy with regard to what you've just been saying? Well, so good news for the ECB. On the one hand, inflation down 6.1% in May to 5.5% in June. But it's the composition. We spoke last week, didn't we, about the composition of inflation in the UK and that it was the underlying strength of price pressures that were spooking the Bank of England. The same thing, I think, is, is happening a little in, in the Eurozone, perhaps not to the same extent as in the UK. But if you look at what's pulled down that headline rate, it's almost all energy and food inflation. Core inflation picked up a little from 5.3% in May to 5.4% in June. That was almost entirely due to the effects of subsidized public transport tickets in Germany. Without that, services inflation would have been broadly unchanged. But the key message is that headline inflation in the in the Eurozone is coming down it is At the moment, it's all about food and energy. Core inflation is still far too strong for the ECB's liking.
0: We spend a lot of time on on these podcasts talking about, understandably, talking about central banks and their role in the fight against inflation. But I wanted to ask you about this call last weekend from the Bank for International Settlements that fiscal policy be tightened to help fight inflation. So... Are higher taxes and spending cuts a
1: missing piece of this puzzle? So, I think there's certainly something to this view. Now, it's quite difficult to get a handle on exactly how loose fiscal policy is right now, partly because when you're making cross country comparisons, how different governments define spending, what, what counts as spending, what counts as tax revenues, there's different definitions of, of the overall fiscal position. Are you including mm-hmm. federal governments or states as well? So, that's one point. The other point is that there's still some pandemic-related support measures rolling off in in fiscal policy, and and that's muddy in the waters. Still, I think it's fair to say that fiscal policy is, on the whole, quite loose. So if you look at, for example, the IMF's estimates of where France's budget deficit is going to be this year, it's just over 5% of GDP deficit of close to 4% in Germany, close to 6% in the UK, over 6% on the federal deficit as a share of GDP in the US. Uh, they are all substantially larger than was the case before the pandemic in, in 2019. You had a surplus in Germany. In the UK, the deficit was about 2% of GDP, just over. In France, it was about 3 So much looser fiscal policy on the whole across major advanced economies. And so I think there is something to this idea that if fiscal policy was tighter, that would mean that central banks have to do less in terms of the heavy lifting in the pushback against inflation, so interest rates would not have to go as high or or have, or have risen so quickly. However, this is where kind of economic realities meet political realities. The idea that governments are going to be cutting spending, raising taxes, as economies are struggling—you know, on the precipice of recession, in many cases, in recession, on on a technical definition, at least in the eurozone—I think is extremely difficult to believe. The idea that governments uh, are going to be able to get political support to substantially tighten fiscal policy is unlikely. So, yes, on balance, I think you can make a case that fiscal policy should be tighter. In reality, that's going to be extremely difficult to do, and that's why I think the the onus is going to remain on central banks.
0: It's part of this this big debate, isn't it, about the costs of... Of getting inflation under control. Adam Tooze had a variation of it in the in the Financial Times on, on Thursday, talking about the idea that getting inflation back to 2% targets is, is just too great, given the, given, the, given the social costs, the economic costs of doing so. What do you make of this idea that the 2% inflation target that central bankers have been holding to for so long should be changed or even ditched? The idea has obviously been swirling around for at least a decade, is it an idea for now or, or after inflation is back in the bottle?
1: You're right. This is not something that's new. It's a, a debate that's been rumbling on for several years. And indeed, we wrote a, a piece back in 2018 questioning whether it was time to review central banks' mandates. Yeah, there, there are various. This can take various guises. You could raise the inflation target. You could adapt and broaden the inflation target to look at. For example, average inflation rates over a period of time, which is obviously what the Fed did. Other politicians have proposed expanding mandates to look at things like productivity to encompass green objectives. So it's not just about the inflation rate itself. I think there's a broader debate going on about what central banks' mandate should be. However, it feels to me like that debate is extremely outdated now. I think it's much easier to make the case for raising central banks' inflation targets when – Inflation is stubbornly stuck stubborn, but below 2%, and deflation is the, the bigger risk. Now, clearly, that is not the case now. So I, I think that debate about, is it time to revisit inflation targets, raise them potentially, I think that that is for the past. Right now, the, 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 the proximate danger is too much inflation, which is why central banks should double down on the 2% target, not think about stepping back from it.
0: That was Neil Shearing on central banks and the growing and evolving debates around inflation. I'll post that report on central bank mandates and our coverage of the Cintra forum in the show notes. Now, staying on the topic of debates around inflation, accusations of greedflation are flying thick and fast. Consumers are angry about rising prices, companies are on the defensive, and politicians are under pressure to do something. But is there anything to the accusations? Simon McAdam from our global team has just published an in-depth note, which answers the question of whether corporate greed is to blame for high inflation. I spoke to him about it earlier Friday, and I started by asking him what greedflation actually is. I think, simply
2: put, it's the idea that inflation is ultimately the result of corporate profiteering. I mean, this is the thing, when you have inflation high for sustained periods of time, it's only a matter of time before people start pointing the finger in a blame game as what exactly is behind this. And I think conceptually, you know, firms are literally the ones who set prices. So I don't think it's much of a a mental leap for people to start thinking that firms are behind the high inflation that we're experiencing. And then you get, you know, you get the news and the media quoting some record profit margins of some big name household terms and then suddenly that, that greedflation narrative sets in and that's what we're here debating today. It, it all
0: seems to center around margins, doesn't it? The arguments around greedflation tend to draw on on these charts produced by IMF staffers, among others, of the breakdowns of GDP deflators, which are these measures of, of price changes in, in an economy. They clearly suggest that profits have become a large and growing part of the inflation story, don't they? So, so what's wrong with these charts?
2: Yeah, they they, they really are like, open to misinterpretation and to mismeasurement, actually. So, the, the the two issues here. So, when everybody, when anybody sees these charts flying around, first thing is, are they actually measuring corporate profits? Because the thing is, a cursory look at the national accounts, something pops up that looks like profits, and it actually includes all sorts of things, includes household rent, the capital depreciation costs of government, and also in fact, actually the, the income of the self-employed, that's all, that's all combined in this sort of very, very high level aggregate measure of profits in the national accounts. So you can sometimes attribute things to corporates when it's actually not, it's not the corporate profits at all, it's, it's household rent or something else. So there's a, there's a measurement issue that can sometimes be a, a, a problem when looking at these charts, but then even if you get the measurement correct, as, as as many people do, you get an interpretation problem, which is to say that oh, it looks like well, the you can see the bars of these the, these contributions of corporate profits rising, and it looks like they're adding more and more to inflation. But the thing is to remember about profits is that it's to some extent it's the just the inverse of costs. So your profits could be rising because your costs are falling, not because you're raising prices. So when you see that. These, these charts where it shows you that the profit contribution to inflation has risen, you can't actually just analyze that and interpret that as saying that that's causing inflation, that's because firms are hiking prices. You've got to be comparing what's happening to profit to what's happening to costs. And it's only when you have that sort of relative and comparative analysis, that's when you can start interpreting what it means for inflation. And what has been happening to to this relationship between profit and cost? I mean, talk
0: through what these profit indicators are telling us about how companies are managing through this inflation cycle.
2: Well, I think maybe it's best to start with talking about what normally happens. And what normally happens and what's happened for decades before this recent inflationary episode is that in a competitive economy, where firms are competing against one another and taking into each other's pricing decisions into account when coming up with their own pricing, that the profits are generally driven by by, by costs. So if your costs fall, your profits rise, and if your costs rise, your profits fall, and prices sort of just fall out of all of this, and corporate profiteering or so on hasn't been a major feature or driver of inflation for many years. That's normally the case. What we've seen more recently, however, in the past 18 months to two years, in, in several major advanced economies is profit margins haven't been expanding outright, but they have, they have been maintained at a high level or just at the level that they have been for many years. So, profit margins haven't really changed. Now, observe that profit margins haven't changed very much over the, to, you know, in the last 12 months compared to previous years. That might lead people to conclude, oh, well, there's, there's nothing to see here then. Clearly, it it can't be the case that, that firms and pricing decisions are somehow contributing to the inflation that we're seeing. I disagree with that because it comes back to the point I made that you've got to compare what's happening with profits to what's happening with costs. And the fact of the matter is that costs for firms have been rising very steeply. And what we'd normally see in a competitive economy is that eat into profit margins. So the fact that you've had these big increases in costs and yet profit margins have stayed firm, that suggests that firms have had an unusual amount of pricing power to be able to pass on all of these higher costs to consumers in order to defend their margins. That's unusual. That's the thing that we haven't seen for decades. And that means that inflation is higher than it otherwise would have been because, of course, if costs had risen into profit margins... Firms wouldn't have been able to pass on all those costs to consumer and inflation would be lower. And by by my calculations, it differs between advanced economies, but on average, inflation at the end of last year would have been two to three percentage points lower had corporate margins absorbed costs to the same extent as they have done in recent decades.
0: So on that basis, they have been responsible for driving up inflation by making consumers eat those rising costs. and, And protecting their margins, companies have played a significant role
2: in pushing up inflation in advanced economies. That is one way of looking at it. Absolutely. It is the case that if you decide to think of the inflation problem in terms of the different drivers from different forms of income, whether that be wages or profits, it's true. Yeah, corporate profits. If corporate profits have been lower, inflation would have been lower. You know, you can infer from that. Therefore, corporates are, are, are contributing to inflation. But I really think there is a very important conceptual distinction to be made, and I think possibly aside from all the sort of measurements and sort of empirical interpretation problems that we've already discussed in this debate, the, the, the single biggest gripe I have with what people say in, in this debate is this misconception that. Because profit's contributing to inflation in this sense, you then interpret that as saying corporates are causing inflation. Corporate profits are not causing inflation. It makes as much sense to say that wages or profits are causing inflation as it is to say that goods or services are causing inflation, or the utilities sector, or the manufacturing sector, or the restaurant sector is causing inflation. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. These are just different ways of splicing and dicing the inflation data to arrive at various so-called drivers. These aren't the causes of inflation. This is how inflation is showing up in the numbers. This is how inflation is manifesting itself. The, The ultimate cause for inflation, the reason why corporates are able to pass on costs to a significant extent is because they have pricing power granted to them in these very extreme, excessive demand conditions, where demand is relatively high compared to supply, and consequently firms have the ability to pass on these costs and to an unusual extent, you can't blame the corporate profits for causing the inflation. That's just how it's showing up in the figures. The real problem, the root of the inflation problem, is one of excess demand.
0: So, on this demand issue, just talking to to Neil about this central bank meeting in Sintra in this past week, talking about Christine Lagarde and her comments. And she said something very interesting with regard to this greedflation debate, talking about the role of central bankers having to dampen demand through restrictive policy enough that firms do start to absorb these, these costs, these labor costs into their margins. In other words, that we go back to how things were, go back to the, the, the years and decades before that you were discussing and that that's how inflation gets tackled. How realistic is this process? It does sound like a fairly benign
2: end to the cycle, doesn't it? It does. I think the way that it was painted, it was particularly benign because it, it sort of implies that because corporate profits have been contributing to inflation to a greater degree than they have done it for, for many decades, therefore a lot of the adjustment can happen, with a lot of the disinflation can happen by a compression of those margins. Without much fallout for the labor markets and cost pressures more generally, it can just be a case that firms just absorb it all. That is very benign to suggest that but that is all, all that's going to happen. I think it's fair to say that because profit margins are usually elevated, that when the excess demand conditions do begin to resolve themselves, that this will show up in, in weaker margins for firms and the profitability will, will fall, as is often the case during recessions. Uh, But to suggest that the sort of imply that the labor market can get away with this almost scot-free, I think, is, is too far. I mean, if you just look at the record of how firms actually respond to a situation in which demand for their products is weakening is, yes, they might do a bit less on the price side of things. They might not be able to hike prices. They don't have the power to pass on costs to the same extent as they did when demand was strong. But the other way that they 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 try and resist the compression of their margins by by reducing costs outright, and that could be through just scaling back hiring plans. It could be by reducing the hours of their staff, or it could, of course, be outright layoffs of staff. So, when the sort of pressures build for profit margins to compress, that's where we could start to see labour markets weaken.
0: And that implies that this cycle ends with with much weaker economic growth, if not if not negative growth, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, our expectation is that we get recessions, albeit mild recessions. And also, it's worth bearing in mind not only we're we expecting a mild recession, but you know, so firms are still reporting. You know, advanced economies, broadly speaking, have been stagnating in real terms for the past sort of year or so. And yet, despite this, they are still reporting acute labour shortages. Now, there's, there's still there's sort of almost like a backlog of trying to fill places with with staff. So, I think. This sort of legacy of shortages, plus the fact that we've got a mild recession, means that you know our base case is that there won't be a big fallout in, in the in the labour market, uh, but some of the adjustment has to come through. A labour market conditions cooling to some extent, and labour cost pressures cooling. It, we can't just completely rely on on corporates to reduce their profit margins. That 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 doesn't. The numbers don't add up, and it's also historically not very feasible. That was Simon McAdam talking greedflation
0: and the end of the inflation cycle. He's briefing clients about his report this coming Thursday, and I'll link to that event in the podcast page. It's going to be a really interesting and important discussion, I think, with Ruth Gregory from our UK team on hand to bring the perspective from the UK where the greedflation debate seems particularly heated. But that's it for this week. You can find Simon's report and all our coverage of inflation and central banks on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for complete access, including the powerful data and charting tools, check out CE Advance, our premium platform. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast from Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.